Hey nerds, just want to give you a quick heads up about these episodes. They were shot live at FinCon in Orlando here in 2018. Um, so the audio quick took like a pretty big hit, um, but we do have the video and those are available on the Royal Legal Solutions YouTube channel. So if you're interested, watch them there. They're phenomenal. The content here is awesome. The video is great. Um, it's just the audio that's a bit lower. So sorry for that. Um, it's the best we could do while we're live there at the event and we'll get better at that, but enjoy the content guys. Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Uh, hi and welcome. Uh, my name is Scott Royal-Smith, I'm the host of the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Um, today, I'm sitting with uh, Fraser Rice. He is a wealth uh, expert in uh, signs of like what are the top tips and tricks and strategies that the wealthy are using to be able to protect their assets, not just from you know asset protection and lawsuits, but also from the government of uh, taking your money with, uh, you know, by any means necessary from what I can tell. Oh, that's for sure. You want to stay away from the government as much as you can. I think a lot of people don't understand that, Frazier. Like, <laughs> a lot of people are, like, thinking, like, oh, well, you know, it's just, like, taxes or whatever. Like, I'm hostile towards the government coming after my stuff, and I try to use every legal means I can to, to try to combat, you know, just like somebody else trying to pickpocket me. It doesn't really matter to me if it's, uh, if it's Uncle Sam or if it's just Sam going down the street. Yeah, no question about yeah. it. It's one of those deals, too, where you watch how government spends things and you say, uh, you know, maybe I can allocate resources a little bit differently and a little bit better. And so I, I have a lot of clients where I talk about that and say, you know, there are different things charitably and otherwise that we can talk about that you can get your... Uh, your values transmitted differently uh, than just necessarily taxes. Uh, that's not to say you can avoid taxes completely, but there are ways to minimize them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's really uh, a field that's not really fully explored. So I think that's something you go into your new book. What's the name of your book? The name of the book is Wealth Actually, uh, Intelligent Decision-Making for the 1%. And I try to go into talking about the different threats to wealth, uh, the different types of things people should talk about when they're transitioning from one level of wealth or one type of wealth to another. Uh, and build the structures around their life so that they can do what they want to do, uh, transfer values to the next generation, uh, have the lifestyle that they want to have, and uh, have the resources they want to have in order to do the things they want to do. Yeah, man, that's really cool because it's really, um, you know, I, I got your book yesterday when we were here at FinCon. That's right. Uh, you ended up hooking me with a coffee and actually signed it for me. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> it um, never gets old. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, the um, what, what I think that was really cool about the way that you were thinking and approaching it was that it was... Um, like foundational frameworks that are actually built into your book too about the way that we should be thinking through the problems, not just like a list of like, here's a top 1,000 strategies that people could be checking off, which I, in, in my, uh, I, when I, I work a lot in NASA protection, right? So, and it's a very, it's very much the same um, a way of, the way that you think through the way to do wealth preservation is very similar to the way that I think about the way asset protection works and that the most powerful information that we can get um, from reading books um, and from listening to experts on this is not necessarily the like tip or trick, but like is it's finding books that are like yours that are actually teaching the ways that we should be thinking. So that way the information isn't good just for today. It's if any of the landscape changes, we're actually saying, no, 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 here's the way that we'll be approaching even a changed landscape. 
to know how to think through it. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Scott, you, you honed in on the right thing, which is that everybody's different. So you can't just have a list of strategies and say, you know, this is how to quote unquote protect your assets. People have different situations. You can be a doctor or an anesthesiologist who has a lot of litigation risk, or you can have a construction business, or you can be in a big inheritor uh, and you know have siblings who have drug problems. And so those are all different types of risks you have to deal with. And therefore, there are different strategies that may or may not apply. And so the, the goal of the book isn't so much to list out the strategies, but it's to say, look, here you are, here are the things that you want to do uh, with your life. And this is the set of assets that you have in order to do them with. Uh, and one of the threats to wealth is litigation and, and other types of risks. Uh, these are the things you have to watch out for to make sure you don't have a lifestyle reduction because yeah. no one likes to go backward on that. You don't go backward. <laughs> That's not the way we do it. We don't lose money. That's the number one rule. No, you, you don't lose money. Uh, you don't like to have forced sales of houses. You don't like to, right. if, you, if you got used to first class, going back to coach is, is not pleasant. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people coming, um, especially in the real estate world, right? We see, I see more and more from investors that are only, you know, three, five years into it and now worth, you know, a few million dollars. And then they're starting to think more into what are the more advanced types of ways that they should be looking at, you know, sheltering, you know, their earnings from taxes or, you know, even offshore options for uh, asset protection more than just domestic pieces of it. What are, what are some of the foundational things that you've brought forward in the book of like the way people should be thinking about um, wealth preservation that's really different um, than what existed beforehand um, to, to give us a better idea of uh, what are like the, the, the frameworks that you that you wanted to share that made you write the book? Sure. So uh, among the things you talked about there, uh, you know, taxes. So if you're in real estate, uh, you probably are familiar with the 1031 exchange, which is probably one of the most powerful tools in place. And so uh, there are various strategies to shield capital gains taxes, income taxes, et cetera. Uh, and more to come as with the Trump tax law changes. So that's one area where uh, you know, people who are looking to preserve their assets, they try to do certain things around real estate. It's become very popular and has been for decades uh, as a wealth preservation tool, a, an asset enhancement to their overall balance sheet, that type of thing. In the book, though, uh, one of the things I talk about is that you know, taxes, uh, investment risk, those types of things, that's a... Uh, I describe sort of a low-hanging fruit. You know, those are things you can really deal with. But one of the major threats to wealth that I see is lack of communication within the family. Uh, many times uh, I've seen fortunes destroyed when family members are fighting over uh, various assets or fighting over an estate plan or arguing after an estate's being settled, uh, that type of scenario. Uh, and so many of the times, from a structuring perspective, Many times it's not so much structures as it is laying out a format for communication within the family uh, so that the intent of the people who have the money and are transferring it to the next generation or to their philanthropies, uh, it's done in a way that the context is delivered to the rest of the family and there's mutual understanding, or at least the attempted mutual understanding, that can reduce the risk of fighting later. That fighting is expensive. You can have, uh, you can have litigation, lawyers, forced sales, uh, unintended tax incomes, all from the fact that there might be lack of communication uh, within the family structure. So I go into it a little bit. That's one of the major issues there. What does that look like? Can you share us a story of like what somebody did that would they could have avoided it had they done? You know. Sure. So well, like? a couple of tips that I talk about in the book, uh, and this goes at at the very earliest stages. Uh, the idea of having an allowance, and then uh, if you give an allowance to someone of five dollars and take two dollars back 
to illustrate the impact of taxes. If you get that bedded in early on with a family, then you, uh, they understand that there are tax implications to lots of things around the wealth that's been created. That's a small, subtle tip, but it's, it's one that's useful. Uh, from, a, from a philanthropy standpoint, I use the exercise that if you have $4 to give away and you have three siblings to give them to, have each of the siblings donate a dollar, and so you're left with $1 for each of them to donate as a group. That gets them working together, understanding what's important to them, and also making decisions together about money. Another exercise is the idea of having a family vacation fund. So if you had $1,000, uh, have the three kids invest that money and to be accountable for those investments. If the fund does really well and you've got $2,000 and you're able to go out on a better vacation, that's a, nice, that's a nice thing for people to learn about. The kids get to learn about how investing works. They also learn about stocks and bonds. Uh, etc. And they also have a positive accountability feature. By the same token, if you have that same exercise and they lose money and they decided together how they lost that money, they not only understand the implications of losing money and start learning the issues about risk and asset allocation and so on, but they're also learning about what each of the siblings is good at and, uh, and also what's important to them and how they make decisions together. Those types of exercises early on, I think, are excellent tools so that you're not having that first experience when uh, your father is declaring what the estate plan is going to be and why one person inherits the business and why one person has cash and why one person is disinherited or something like that. So there's context around that. There's at least a little bit of understanding in, uh, of how you got, how the family got to that point so that that first experience doesn't happen when the estate's being settled or when an estate plan's being uh, laid out for a family member. Because ultimately, then there's a lot of emotional baggage that's taken place. There can be a lot of infighting. There's lack of understanding of why you got to that place. And that can lead to untoward uh, examples well, of fighting. Well, people are pissed, right? Oh, they're upset. Yeah. They don't understand. And then they start fighting, saying, I deserve this, you deserve right. that. And it's like tied to something like, you know, I wasn't loved. Yeah, like, no, exactly right. You all... didn't give me the business. You never trusted me. Unless they have an understanding to like know the framework, then obviously they're going to take it negatively. And I'm, I'm wondering about like in that same vein, is there is a certain usually like level of wealth that starts to make sense? Or is this are these types of things that you'd say, hey, for, for anybody out there, you should start doing these exercises with your with your kids, with your loved ones as a part of a way of, of just having better community. I, I think in general, these types of concepts translate to any level of wealth. And frankly, it's a good idea to probably do them generally speaking in case someone's successful. Uh, you know, as you're trying to teach your kids uh, what to do when they grow up, it, 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 it's sort of the foundation of financial literacy so that they're making good decisions about borrowing money for college and what major to choose from. And when they're getting married, what do I understand about you know my spouse's situation versus my situation? Because all of those types of things, that's the, those are some of the emotional touch points that kick in, and that is asset protection. I mean, divorce is, it's, you know, divided by two is no fun right. uh, from an asset perspective. I was thinking about that. I'd give my daughter $100, do like a fake marriage to a friend at school, and be like, now you guys are divorced, now give them half of your jelly beans, there are and all that's it. There are, all, there are all sorts of exercises. <laughs> I, I, I don't endorse everything, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever gets the message across sometimes works. And... Uh, You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised at the lessons that come out. Yeah, how how receptive are um, how how receptive are kids to like these like these types of lessons? Are they pretty intuitive? 
for them to be able to understand what that is, or is it something usually totally foreign? Because like taxes aren't natural, right? That's not something from the natural world, and, and neither is like investing, so to speak. You know, like those are pretty abstract concepts. Yeah, I think that it depends in some ways on the level of education. There are definite situations where kids who have an aptitude for it they glom onto things very quickly, and it, it depends, you know, how much they read, how much they pick up at school, what the curriculum is, that type of thing. Uh, some people just aren't interested in it. You have very artistic types or sports types or different people who, you know, that they don't groove on it. And, and if they're not interested, you can't necessarily force understanding on people. But uh, I think people through osmosis pick up a lot of things, kids especially. And and if and if you sort of transmit those lessons earlier and earlier, I, I think it, it, it has an impact. Sometimes not measurable, sometimes not immediate. But uh, if, if there's something that sticks that helps, you know, create a data point for some big decision later on, at the very least, that triggers a, some sort of synapse that says, you know, I need to go ask for help or I need some advice around that. And if you're helping people avoid bad decision making, that's a, I think that's a net positive. So, you know, from a, financial, cool. from a financial literacy perspective, I don't think you can get really too early on that. That doesn't mean you have to declare what the estate plan is or source of wealth or how daddy got rich and that type of thing. You can wait on that front, but you can have other exercises that have much smaller stakes that help, uh, you know, help get some of those lessons across uh, in, a, in a less high-stakes environment. Yeah, well, I think there's, there's quite a few people I know that are listening to this episode that say, well, my kids are already like 18, 21, 22. Right. Um, would you, are you even advocating for say, hey, well, you know, hey, like at this next Christmas, instead of spending a thousand bucks on everybody's Christmas presents, let's try to do one of these uh, like charitable collaboration games, essentially. Yeah. To figure out what we're going to do with that and make that like the tradition. You know, it depends where you're coming from and what the family situation's like and, you know, who's interested in what. But I don't think it's too early or even too late to go through these exercises. And, you know, it, 18 is kind of a strange time only because you're you're old enough to have some experience but you're not quite young enough to have a lot of responsibilities uh, and so they, they you know people who are 36 and so on sometimes they you know as they have families and they understand that they have young kids that they need to deal with those exercises translate just as well to them uh, 18 sometimes it's really a function of getting them to stop playing Fortnite and and to focus on things uh, but I, I, there's no reason not to do that. And, yeah. and I think, you know, if you're talking about a philanthropy exercise or a shared investing game or something like that, uh, I don't think that's a bad idea. And uh, ultimately, uh, the sibling or siblings that are interested in it will groove on it. And, uh, and if it comes to some point later on in life where they have to take control because they have the aptitude and the ability to do it of the fa family finances, uh, that's you've, you've gotten a little more experience for them earlier on. Is that so? Is that true with something? You know, a lot of the people that are you know a lot of listeners here are all uh, real estate investors. Right. Most are right. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if that that's also true in trying to teach about like certain asset classes that would come in and say like you know dad's building wealth through real estate, right? You guys are going eventually probably going to inherit the real estate building because it's going to be the things that I'm building for my own retirement, um, you know, and and what that's going to look like. So uh, if, if you're, you know, a parent that's in that situation and you're building and you have so much wealth in that uh, scenario, if you don't teach your kids about it, is it typically common that they'll just sell the assets 
or that, that you really should take the time to invest in teaching them and rewarding them for spending the time to learn about how to, to use those assets to gain off of your experience. Like right. What, is, what do the really wealthy people do to, well, to pass it on? So I'll stick with real estate for a second, and that's because as an asset class, it's got a lot of different features in many ways uh, than stocks and bonds and other asset classes. It's got a lot of different tax advantages to it. Uh, it's an area where uh, owner-operators tend to have a lot of uh, experience that can be passed on, uh, geographic and operational and otherwise. And so uh, the, the fact that it's a family business beyond just an operating business uh, is something where the culture can be passed on as well. And many times uh, the idea of uh, sort of melding the term philanthropy and business with real estate, uh, but there are lots of different things that real estate uh, as an asset class uh, helps effectuate for family members later on. And it's got the the prejudice with real estate, and it's a good prejudice, is that it's 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 a safer thing. It's it's dirt in the ground, it's buildings, it's something you can see and touch and you can show your kids what this is and what that is and that that, that building does this and this commercial center does that and you charge rent for people to be there. It's it's intuitive, and so it it's a good framework for uh, transferring a lot of different lessons about wealth to the next generation because you can kind of see and touch it uh, in many ways that some other businesses you can't. Um, as it relates to the larger concept of uh, wealth, generally speaking, uh, I, I've seen different ways of handling that. One of the largest families I dealt with, uh, the patriarch, the gener first generation person, essentially. Uh, had a couple of the siblings work at rival companies to learn the business so that they were they were not part of the family business early, although I think in the back of his mind he had that in mind, but he got training elsewhere and was building, they were, the uh, family members were building their context and their experience in a different environment so that it was, uh, you know, non-conflicted nepotism issues, they could build their own self-esteem and succeed in different places, uh, and the, the, the kids ended up thriving in that environment and came back and were extremely well prepared to take over the family business if and so they wanted to and they ended up doing that and it's turned out to be a real nice thing. Uh, other times people get brought into the family business uh, without that intermediate step and uh, sort of look at it and uh, they say okay the, you know we're going to start you off at the bottom and you're going to learn it from the ground up and you know there's there's a bit of a safety net there because uh, when you're the boss's son that's a different thing but uh, or son or daughter, excuse me, and it, uh, but people start to, uh, you know, that's one way to sort of do the development. And other times, you know, just sort of general financial concepts get translated so that people can go out and do their own thing, uh, you know, especially in cases where people's talents lay elsewhere. You know, if you're a real estate developer and one son suddenly becomes an investment banker and another one's an artist and the other goes to the Peace Corps, all of them could be wildly successful in what they're doing. It just doesn't translate in the currency that they grew up with. You know, maybe they're financially successful with it, but you know, their successes in other ways. You know, the Peace Corps person, you know, if they're helping lots of people, you know, building water wells in Africa or something like that, that's something that uh, I talk about in the book. That sometimes there's uh, currency of success that doesn't necessarily translate to dollars, or even more specifically, dollars generated by a family business. And that's something to be aware of. Yeah, I think that's true, but I think what a lot of people fall into is usually like a false dichotomy between the two, right? It's usually like Peace Corps or like an artist meant, oh, they're not financially savvy right, right. into what they do. And, and one thing that I've, I've learned uh, more and more, like maybe through the last like five or ten years from exposure into that, is that 
those don't have to be that way. That if you can get kids like young enough or people young enough or, or just spend some time coaching them to be like, that's cool, go be an artist. Um, and But you can also have like this whole other side of saying, just because you're an artist doesn't necessarily mean you have to be poor, right? And, and like it was like my, uh, my godfather was telling me that he was, I was, um, I was 22 years old and I was doing martial arts professionally with like kickboxing and Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and Sweet. competing in like combat sports, right? And I loved it. Um, and he's like, you should consider going to law school. I was like, meh, I don't really know. Like, I'm making a ton of money doing private tutoring because I'm a mega nerd myself. And so I can teach, like, college-level calculus and, like, Spanish and all of, like, chemistry and physics. And they'll pay me 100 bucks an hour to the rich kids at this private school to go sit with them to teach them this stuff. I don't know if I want to do that. And he's like, well, go to law school. Um, and then if you decide you want to sell popsicle sticks, at least you're a lawyer selling popsicle sticks. And you have, like, a choice to, like, of what do you want to go do. And it's, like, given me this really weird... Um, like ability to be like, well, what I really enjoy is like uh, talking to people and educating and happens to be in this field of real estate, right? But I have like this background that's financial savviness that I'm not just, I'm not, not to say like I'm not just a teacher, but it's like, oh, those things that I loved about being a teacher have a much broader, richer context, just like you could have as a, as a kid maybe who is an artist and say, well, they really have like this strong artistic take, but we can teach them like some of these foundational skills so they can be like a, somebody that doesn't suffer for their art that they can thrive with a broader context of how they grow bigger and maybe that's something that um, people that are more sophisticated or understand like wealth of like as a sphere of life understand better about developing people that I didn't understand about myself that he had to tell me that to get me to do that and, um, and maybe that's like a form of mentorship that happens as a more sophisticated way of how elders should be interacting with people to help uh, nourish them in that context. I just thought it was interesting, and the only reason I brought it up is because um, your point to um, using the investments to have the kids learn about like what they're good at and where do they actually go to, because the kid that is actually super creative and where should we be investing might not be the one that's the most financially savvy on what happens with the balance sheet, but you need to know that. Right. And to know when do you need help with balance sheets. Well, you shouldn't be doing them. Just one comment. Uh, you go from martial arts expert to law school. You're now well-versed in two forms of combat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was a litigator before. Oh, so combat so combat came really natural for me. Well, I'm like running. getting punched in the face was just as much fun as destroying somebody in the courtroom. And now, <laughs> now I get to help people build stuff, right? Which is way more fun than tearing it down. But that, yeah, I That love is combat. for sure. Uh, yeah. To get back to your point, though, uh, you know, sometimes you, you don't necessarily need to be high-level calculus or an economics expert to have a good common, common sense about things. Uh, you know, for instance, this is such a pet peeve of mine, I wish the power of compounding, just that concept was taught as early as possible. So that, you know, the idea that if you, you know, let time work for you from an investing standpoint, that you get the dollars, uh, if you're saving and you have time and interest working for you, that that can have a very powerful effect later on. And by the same token, if you if you go the other way on the debt side of things, that it can have a very deleterious effect on you. That to me is that that's something where you don't necessarily need to you know go into high level non Euclidean geometry to try to prove it. Uh, but if it's something that someone has common sense about, they can make good decisions about their life and and uh, in you know, take advantage of their advantages uh, well, to the extent it's, that's it's, possible. It's super basic, right? And like, and, and so many of these basic, um, so many of the things that we like hear time and time again, especially on real estate nerds, is about where investors will take missteps. And a lot of times it comes into blind spots. That'll happen like somebody didn't even have an experience of like, what is that even like? To right. know that that's a weakness for me or to have, um, that's something I need to be concerned about. So 
like I am not an advocate for people being really good at everything ever, right? It's like mainly you can be wildly successful being really good at one thing if you just know who are the right people to help you with all of the other pieces that come in and like what does it even look like and to know that you even need help. You know, no question about it. I mean, if you can if if you can issue spot really well, uh, it, it, that is that to me that is good risk mitigation because you don't need to be able to solve every problem, but you need to know that they're up there, and yeah. that the red flags are out there, uh, and then to sort of dovetail off of something you were talking about before. I agree with you. It's very very difficult to be you know one of the top one percent in the world at any one thing. But if you're okay at a couple of things, that, that to me is a good business model sometimes. So if, you, if you're good at real estate and you understand a geography and you understand how to operate something or manage people, that can get you pretty far. And if you combine that with that sort of issue spotting and risk mitigation and relationship building, as you say, uh, that gives you access to resources like lending, it gives you access to deals, it gives you access to all sorts of things that you might not have had otherwise. And if you Look, I wouldn't tell anybody to not prepare or do really well at something or be the best you possibly could, but uh, being well-rounded isn't bad, and I think it helps. Absolutely, Frazier, and thank you so much for coming on the Real Estate Nerd Show here today. Um, we'll be airing this right here at FinCon 2018, uh, right when we get back from that. So, and, and just one more time, can you remind everybody the, the name of your book and where they should go to get it? You bet. Uh, Fraser Rice, uh, the book is Wealth Actually. You can find it on Amazon, wealthactually.com or fraserrice.com. And I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and all the major platforms. That's awesome. Thanks, nerds, for joining in today. We will be catching up with you guys again soon. Go get Fraser's book. I've, uh, I've skimmed through it and uh, read some, some really powerful content uh, already with it. I just got it yesterday. I uh, was reading it last night. Phenomenal stuff. So go pick it up, and we'll see you guys again soon. Thanks again, Scott. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith, with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.